I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. You're listening to Muses. My name is Lynx, and I hope you enjoy the show. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Muses. This is so exciting because, Shanti, I've missed you so much having you on. I'm doing this with you. So, oh, hi. Hello, Links. Hi, everybody. I missed you. Thank you so much for joining me. And it, oh, it's just so great to see your smiling face and I wanted to do this one with you so bad and I was going to save it for December, but then I was like, I just want to do it now. So Yeah. Yeah. And we wanted to see each other and yeah, I told you I'd be back. So I dusted off the old Roland microphone <laughs> box set. <laughs> Here I am. What a great way to spend an afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Do you want to tell everyone what you've been up to lately? Sure. Wearing a lot of toques already because it's freezing <laughs> out here. I just finished my Halloween costume today. Oh my God. That photo. Amazing. I sent Link's a little sneak peek and I'm going out as Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz. Dale, my dog, is going out as the Cowardly Lion because I got him a, a lion's mane, which he tolerates for 15 <laughs> seconds while I feed him treats. Uh, TJ is going to go out as the scarecrow. I'm going to put Chester in a little basket because he, yeah, the cat's going to be the dog. The dog's going to be the lion. You know what I mean? And then, um, maybe we'll put, we have all this like tiny little funnel that we might spray paint silver and just try to stick it to Callie's head for two seconds. Oh my God. I love it. 
the whole family perfect. I'm one of those people now. I'm one of those people (laughs) that makes family Halloween costumes, but I don't have children. It's I'm dressing my pets up to accommodate my outfit. And yeah, I just found a no, I found a no sew Dorothy dress pattern. So I went to the secondhand store and I went to the fabric section and I found two checkered pillowcases that were perfect for a dress. So I ripped them all apart and I followed a child's YouTube channel tutorial. No, so I didn't even know that was like a possibility. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's all glue gun. Wow. It looks elastic and safety pins and just cutting it up. Yeah. My first attempt wasn't successful. I was not in the right state of mind. I gave up and went to bed. Yeah. Hey, sometimes you got to just set it down and walk away for a bit and come back at it with a, you know, a different mindset for sure. Like I couldn't do it. Um, uh. And then I woke up fresh, fresh mindset. Or actually, you know what? I gave it a couple hours and then I finished and then I did a good bulk of it in the evening. And then today I just finished it with some details and some trim. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. Are you dressing up for Halloween? I think I'm just probably going to do maybe some cat ears or something. I'm working the bar on uh, the Saturday, so I don't really have a go-to costume right now or anything, but I bet you'd be a cute little saucy devil. Oh yeah. Like if you got you know, red devil ears and some nice red makeup and like, you got a red dress, right? I I do. You're right. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I I could see you as a little devil. I got some options. Yeah. Okay. You better go on the Muse's Instagram though and post that family photo when you get it done because I'm sure all the listeners will want to see that now. Okay. Yeah. I think it's going to be pretty cute. Yeah, I was looking pretty rough in the picture that I sent you, but no. I'm, I, I I'm didn't. I, I was just looking at the costume, thinking, "My God, like so cool! Good job." Okay, great. That's about it. That's really all. That's that's new. Just like working, mm-hmm. relaxing, trying to relax, trying yeah. to keep it together. Yeah, that's good. I uh, I had an interesting weekend. Yeah, I, I uh, was walking down the street going home after a night out and um, a cyclist hit me from behind on the sidewalk and uh, I face planted and by the time I got up the cyclist was well on his way down the street so didn't stop to make sure I was okay no one was around it was very scary very disorienting I got a big I don't know it looks like you've been punched in the face yeah my knees are pretty sore today my hands, but it could have been a lot worse for sure. Just throwing it out there. If anyone is a cyclist who decides to go on the sidewalk, don't do it. If you're not a child, don't do it. You're really putting other people at risk. I only ever see men do that, to be honest, but that's even more infuriating to me. (laughs) So, Oh, it's like, yeah, nobody was around. There were no cars on the road. There was one person on the sidewalk. Mm, That's a little suspicious to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're being kind by giving the benefit of the doubt that like it was an accident, but woo. Yeah. What a wild thing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Well, I'm okay. I've survived. I'm just a little battered, but, uh, I'll be fine. Yeah, shaken up. Yeah. Yeah. That was the biggest thing. It was just like the fact that it happened and those like 
30 seconds where I, I didn't know what happened and just trying to lift myself off the ground. And uh, when I slammed my head, it was raining too. It was like, it couldn't have been worse, right? Like, great, great. I'm in a puddle now, lying face first. It sucked, but. Well, if that guy did it on purpose, he 100% deserves to get his wheel caught in a streetcar track. Yes. Yeah, let's and- uh let's put that out into the universe <laughs> for him. <laughs> like I don't want him to die, but like if he could just get just his face caught plant in like the streetcar track and face plant, then karma dude. Yeah. Awful. Well, I'm okay. I'm gonna be my tough self and mm-hmm. I feel like this is a good episode for that because I can't think of anyone like stronger and more amazing than Grace Jones, right? I'm so excited. Yeah. What a badass. I've had this book for a couple years now. My dad actually bought it for me and it's been sitting on the shelf. I've been wanting to do it forever. I feel like I've been mentioning it to you for like at least like over a year for sure. Like, Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So and then, and then even though you had been mentioning it to me for a year, there was one time where I'm like, I think I'm going to do Grace Jones. And you're like, no, I've been waiting. That's my episode. I was like, okay, right. Yes, yes, yes. You go on. Yeah, I'm pumped for this. Grace's book, I read her book. It's called I'll Never Write My Memoirs. Great title. <laughs> She is not a linear person. She's one of those people, and I find this really fascinating too. Timelines aren't really a thing for her. Years aren't a thing. Age isn't a thing. She credits the fact that she still looks like she hasn't aged at all on the fact that she doesn't ever think about age or time in the way that other people do. Well, that's a new one. Yes. That's a new one for me. It's an interesting one. But because of this, when she talks about her life, it's a little muddled timeline-wise. So her book is pretty scattered, not linear. I've done my best to kind of timeline it out as much as I could. But I might be you know, slightly scattered with you know, certain years and everything as well, because years don't exist to grace. <laughs> Doing God's work, Lynx. <laughs> okay. Grace was born on May 19th in Spanish town, Jamaica. So Grace doesn't say her birth year in her memoir, (laughs) only that the media tends to put her two to four years older than she is. And if you look at the Wikipedia, it says 1948, but also states in many other places that she was born in 1952. So again, already from from birth, there's no exact time here. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. So the custom in Jamaica was that you were known by your middle name. So everyone, when she was growing up, called her Beverly. She also had the nickname Firefly because of her incredible dark shimmery skin and white eyes and teeth. She really stood out. Her mother, Marjorie, was 16 when she married Grace's father, Robert. He was six years older. By the time her mother was 23, she had six kids and I think seven altogether eventually. Grace was the third. Wow. My goodness. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine being pregnant for nine months, let alone like, <laughs> like you immediately after. She must have just been getting knocked up like literally. <laughs> what a woman. My goodness. Yep. So on her mother's side, they were very strict, very, very strict, very, very religious. 
And her father's family was a little bit more ambitious and disciplined, but like in a different way. They were kind of like politicians, leaders in the community. So from both sides, her life was extremely regimented. Her father also became a pastor. So the religious aspect is deep. Actually, Grace's, one of Grace's brothers is like a famous pastor in LA right now and has done like reality TV shows as a pastor and shit. Like they are heavily religious. Mm -hmm. So there was really a lot of pressure to be a certain type of way. There were musical elements in Grace's family history, though. Her maternal grandfather was a recording artist, and he had some big hits and toured with his band. But Grace didn't even know this until later in life because it was kept a secret from the kids because the music lifestyle and the religious lifestyle, you know, didn't really mix. Like many families back then, hers decided to immigrate to America. Her dad went first. Her mother followed shortly after, and... The kids at this point were then raised by her maternal grandmother and her sister, who Grace says both married men 20 years younger than them. (laughs) And apparently, like, of course, that was very unconventional. But here's the thing. These women did not want kids. They did not want to be raising other people's kids either. So again, very strict, very religious. It was not a happy, healthy atmosphere whatsoever. It was very abusive growing up. There's pages in her books about, you know, beatings and her siblings. They would be reprimanded for normal child behavior all the time. So I'm not going to go into like great detail, but yeah, she went through a lot. She went through a lot. They all did. School was not much better. Very strict, violent. She talks about her and her siblings' favorite time of day being the walk to school and the walk back because that was the only time that they were kind of between these two nightmare situations. One time, Grace was allowed to visit her dad's sister, Sybil, in Kingston. She only spent two days with her, but Sybil was very happy and free and showed her around, took her to the movies, like really opened her eyes. There's this other way of living. So, of course, that was very liberating for Grace. And she knew one day, no matter what it takes, I'm going to break free. I'm going to live the way I want to live. So Sybil was a huge role model for Grace and really the only woman she knew who wasn't conforming to a certain standard back then. I love a strong aunt. It's so interesting too, because I feel like we've had this conversation many times before in other episodes. Like there's always that one relative that like Mm -hmm. gives you hope. Hey kids, come over here. Yeah, exactly. We didn't tell you. Exactly. So Grace was in her early teens when her parents finally sent for her to come to America. All the kids kind of went one by one, not all together, and she cannot fully remember the order, but she thinks she was the first or second. So her parents were then in Syracuse, New York. They were the only Black family in the area. It was mostly Italian, but her mother had been flourishing there. She adjusted to the more relaxed American way of life. She was making her own clothes, adopting her own style. She knew about movies and music. And this was another kind of revelation for Grace. And like seeing her mother open up like that was another exciting thing. In Jamaica, they start high school early. So Grace was three years ahead of where the American kids were at that age. So she ended up graduating at 15 and entered college. Oh, wow. As you can imagine, it's interesting because she talks about 
she sort of talks about experiencing racism, but she wasn't conscious of it or she didn't consider it racism. Like she says she was picked on for her accent, her clothes, her skin, her differences, but maybe it wasn't like direct racist remarks. So she didn't register it as that at the time, at least. Okay. She she just just thought like that person over there gets bullied for that thing. That person over there gets talked to this way because of this. And this is the way that I'm being spoken to but maybe she didn't have the language at the time to define exactly, exactly. what it was. Yeah. Okay. She just considered herself a loner and different. And that's what she felt kind of set her apart, basically. Mm-hmm. She still had her older brother, Chris, though, who she was really close to. And together, as you do as a teenager, they began rebelling. They would sneak out, drink booze, smoke cigarettes, meet the boys, you know, the usual. Her brother Chris was gay, and you know, their father being a pastor was not pleased with that. So, Chris definitely had a hard time. But Grace began joining him out for excursions to like all the gay clubs. And she talks about how her and Chris were like twins, but he was born with the stronger feminine side, and she had the more masculine side. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, all about the genes. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, their mother was a lot more understanding about it and just let them be as people and let them grow in their own way. Good job, mama. There's a great line in the book where she says that she never felt like she was being disloyal to her parents, even if they saw her rebellions as that. She was simply being loyal to herself. Mm-hmm. She said when she got to America, she just stopped asking permission to do things and just decided I'm going to be the person I want to be. Mm-hmm. Love her. Grace was the first person to have an Afro at her school. And soon, of course, many others followed, which very much, again, displeased her father. She also began wearing makeup, heavy lashes, bright colors. The Supremes were big influence on her then. She also oh, began yeah. making her own outfits, just like her mom. So from the get-go, she was into fashion as a form of showing who you are inside oh she's bet she's just like a walking piece of art she is though like you look at her and you're like yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. so grace began studying to become a spanish teacher which was an ambition framed by her jamaican middle class expectancy but a theater teacher at her school named tom invited her to a class one day and that kind of changed the trajectory of everything in her life Tom invited Grace to participate in a summer stock theater show. So this would teach Grace about acting and the behind the scenes goings on and let her travel a little bit. He even went to her parents to convince them it would be good for her. So they agreed and she went to Philadelphia. Now, Grace never actually saw herself as a singer. She felt her voice was too masculine and deep, but Tom encouraged her acting and singing and kind of, you know, made her start to believe in her talent. During this time, she would play four different roles and she loved all the behind the scenes action. And she really found her passion and, you know, was beginning to like find herself. She still had no confidence though, when it came to singing, unless Tom was there like supporting her, encouraging her. Grace wanted to stay in Philadelphia and discover even more after her visit there in the summer stock show. So she ended up staying. And for a brief time, she actually, with a boyfriend, 
joined a hippie commune hmm. and discovered the wonders of LSD. She was go-go dancing to make money. She was hanging out with the Hells Angels. Who among us wouldn't right? if we were in that situation? Who among us? She even lived as a nudist for a month. Oh, right on. Yeah. Interesting. She talks about being arrested often for being a black woman dating a white man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She says they would pick her up for prostitution, assuming that's the only reason they would be together. Ugh. Yeah. And that's a ugh for the cops. Of course. Ugh. Ugh. Grace was still interested in acting, but her boyfriend also suggested maybe you should try your hand at modeling. So she would start to travel to New York to go to go sees and her first professional shoot was for Essence magazine. And I believe that came out in 1970. So she met a photographer she loved and trusted named Tony Barboza. And he shot many of her portfolios and a bunch of nudes and everything and kind of got her foot in the door. Mm -hmm. So Grace moves back to New York. She's pursuing modeling, acting, but she actually found her looks to be an accent to be a detriment. People really weren't quite ready for the amazingness of Grace Jones yet, but Wilhelmina Cooper saw, you know, the untapped potential there and signed her. Because are we in the late 60s at this point? Yes. Okay. Yes. Right after she got signed, Grace cut off her afro into this very short haircut, and that really displeased the agency because okay. she did it without permission, just like Grace would. And at the time, it was like more like a pretty look for women, right? Not like a striking look like that. Yeah, or androgyny even. Exactly. And that's where she was headed. She was beginning to like really enjoy being the one who stood out, even if it took others a little while to recognize the star in her. Mm -hmm. So she'd been trying out for a lot of jobs and many times her friends would get the parts instead. But she finally got a call back for a part in a film and she ended up flying to Los Angeles to meet with one of the producers. We know this story. She arrives at his home. She finds him wearing a robe, drinking champagne. Oh. Yeah. And of course, in no time, the guy's all over her. So what did Grace do? She slammed the glass of champagne in his face and walked out. Yes. Yes. The next day she got a note with an apology and an offer to play the part in the film. So okay, it worked for her. Okay. The film was called Gordon's War. Uh, it's like um, an exploitation type of film. Wait, what does that mean? Exploitation? Yeah. Those are like like Foxy Brown, uh, women in prison, like, you know, like B movies. Okay. At the okay. time, that's just yeah. what they were called. Like, okay. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Just a type of genre of film. Okay. Back in New York, things were getting rough though. One of Grace's best friends, she was a fellow not model named Pola. She was basically like her partner in crime. She ended up committing suicide. Yeah. And of course that really, really affected Grace. And Wilhelmina Cooper suggested, because she was having such a hard time booking things in America, that she go to Europe to try to make a name for herself. Because mm -hmm. if you could make it in Europe, then America usually would take notice. Okay. So Grace is like, yeah, you know what? A change of scene might be good for me. I'm going to move to Paris. Again, since Grace doesn't like age and time, timelines are a little bit confusing here. She says it could have been multiple years, 71 to 74-ish. 
on her Wikipedia, it says she moved in 1970. <laughs> I'm guessing that may be a little bit more accurate. She calls her time in Paris her most formative years. She really learned a lot about her craft there, about makeup, lighting, style, understanding her body and the angles. She asked a lot of questions. She made sure she could learn as much as she could. But it wasn't an easy start. There's this man named Johnny Casablancas. He founded Elite Model Management. Mm -hmm. He was Grace's connection there to find work. So Grace goes, meets him. All of a sudden, she's noticing all these other models are going out on casting calls and not her, never her. So she finally confronts him. And his exact words to her were, selling a black model in Paris is like trying to sell them an old car nobody wants to buy. So Grace says that was really the first time in her life that she'd been so straightforwardly confronted about her skin color. Okay. She says, until that moment, I'd never in any way felt inferior because I was black. Okay. In the past, when she would lose jobs, maybe they wanted a lighter skinned woman. She always looked at it like a technical thing, lighting, whatnot, you know, people want a certain look. She says this, of course, wasn't the last time she experienced it, but race to grace had never been a factor in her life before because she just didn't see the world that way. She didn't look at it like that. So, of course, that comment from Casablanca just lit a fire under her and she was like, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. So there was another agency just forming there at the time called Euro Planning. And Grace had met the men that founded it in New York before she moved there. So she got a hold of them. They signed her immediately. She mm. became their first model. And you know who the other two that followed her were? Jerry Hall and Jessica Lang. Oh, okay. I wouldn't have guessed that, but yeah, right on. Yeah. So they all end up becoming roommates at the same hotel, oh, okay. like close friends. Isn't that so cool? Mm -hmm. Grace talks a little bit about Jerry and how much fun they had, but like they were, they were friends and rivals. They had yep. these like, friendly competitions with men and partying and but they had a ton of fun together but they both had that like drive to like be the best and everything yeah Casablanca's did not like the fact that Grace was living it up and finding other people to represent her and everything and he really actually tried to like mess with her career he owned a lot of the studios that um, the photographers shot at and she he wouldn't let her shoot there but soon the photographers were realizing what amazing potential she had and she began working with people like Helmut Newton for instance and all these big name photographers were like she couldn't be ignored anymore basically hell yeah yeah that's right she could not be ignored exactly there was also another model living at the time at the same hotel named Esty she had a boyfriend who was a talent scout at the hotel, Grace would just sing at the top of her lungs and it would echo through the courtyards. And Esty's boyfriend heard her and was like, you know what, like you should record a demo, like let's do this. So she recorded a demo of a song called Dirty Old Man. I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. They spotted the talent there, but they suggested singing lessons. Grace agreed, but she found the teacher boring, so she really didn't put her all into it. But luckily she had this moment where she realized like, what am I doing? Like, don't waste a good opportunity. Don't blow it. So she decided to kind of focus, figure out what kind of music that she would want to make, 
start to learn about her voice. You know, it's not about sounding like someone else or hitting crazy notes. It's about like working with what you have. That's a, yeah, that is a great lesson. That's a good, mm mm-hmm. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. So Grace ends up recording her first single, I Need a Man. She has this magical moment where her modeling career and singing career kind of teamed up. A fashion designer named Essie Mayaki, he asks Grace if she would sing the song at his show while modeling this beautiful wedding dress that he designed. Mm. So that was her first official public singing event and a huge honor. And she would continue to work with him on like his avant-garde shows throughout the 70s. He also used Grace as the star of his infamous 12 Black Model show. And at the time, again, to be a Black model at the time, like you, there would be one in the show. You know, you right. would be the one. So for a designer to use all Black models was like a very amazing thing at the time. And Grace was the star of it. Yeah. He also would design so many of Grace's iconic looks during her music career. So they were collaborative partners for years and years after this as well. She loved his. Yeah, they were Muse. Like that was a Muse designer creator relationship for sure. Absolutely. Yes. So at this point in her career, Grace is beginning to be known as like the singing model. So as we know, mid 70s, disco is becoming a big thing. Back in New York, a man named Tom Moulton, he was taking a few of Grace's demos that she recorded in Paris, and he gave them like a more dancey disco flair. And soon Grace was hearing word that she had a disco hit, and she, she hadn't even heard his version, but it was a hit in the clubs. So at this point, she decides it's time to move back to New York City, and soon she's going to record with Tom. It's so fascinating, like reading memoirs, it always blows me away when women who I watch as this extreme, confident, strong person, of course they struggle with self-esteem just like everyone else, but like, you just don't see that. And I, I remember growing up and like reading Jane Fonda's book as well. Like these women that I've just always thought were these like pillars of strength for them to have these moments too, is like, it's so reassuring as well, you know? Oh yeah. I never would have thought 
Grace Jones had any insecurities, but of course she did. She's human, right? Right. She'd go into the studio full of nerves and it would take her some time, a little bit of pampering maybe like to get her to like where she needed to be. She just wasn't this like absolute force in nature on the first try. She, she had to work for it. She was also shy singing in front of people for the first time, but again, that wasn't going to stop her. Mm-hmm. She began getting gigs in New York. Her first was on Halloween performing at the gallery. She only had three songs at the time, but she already knew how to put on a show. Interestingly, she had no band or anything when she first started, so she had to make sure to keep everyone entertained. She learned how to talk, do interesting things during performances. She, she always wanted to make sure the audience knew she was singing live as well. At the time, she was wearing this outfit by Miyake that she calls her Darth Vader suit. It was like mm-hmm. layered up and she would slowly take like each layer off until she was finally in this skin tight bodysuit. Amazing. Right? What a show that must have been. Right? She also realized she wasn't a dancer. So she found less movement and more posing worked best for her. Awesome. Or she would crawl on across the stage. Mm-hmm. She would hiss at the audience. She'd sometimes like pretend to slap audience members and just wild like (laughs) no one had seen a show like hers before basically so smart yeah she was also present of course for the beginning of studio 54 which changed new york nightlife forever um of course she was still going to max's and all the underground clubs as well she says 54 offered a self-indulgent excessive even a moral form of freedom and was a place where I could let it all hang out. The underground clubs satisfied the explorer in me seeking new discoveries. Hot. That sounds hot. (laughs) She was a force in those clubs. There is an interesting story about Grace going to 54 on New Year's Eve. I believe she was performing, and she was bringing the guys from the band Chic. She was supposed to put them on the guest list. She says she put them on the guest list, but for whatever reason, they weren't on, and they weren't allowed in the club. So they leave angry about it and they go home and they write a song called fuck off, but they felt it's a hit and certainly not going to be a hit with that title. So they end up changing a few things and fuck off becomes freak out. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) okay. (laughs) And yeah, of course, like a dance craze came out of that. So if Grace hadn't put them on the guest list or if that guest list thing hadn't happened with grace the song freak out would have never existed oh i missed learning about these little (laughs) facts about music that you know these songs that just will live in your brain forever and you're like oh that was about that okay right so cool grace performed often at 54 as well she of course is meeting a million amazing people she mentioned specifically in the book meeting marion faithful and that Marianne introduced her to Cocoa Puffs, which was marijuana cigarettes laced with cocaine. Okay, that sounds fun, to be honest. (laughs) I like this because Marianne calls them Cocoa Puffs, but ever since Marianne taught Grace about it, Grace calls them Marianne's after her. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Grace is performing at all these clubs in New York. She's spending plenty of time in Paris as well. She performed at the opening of a club called The Palace, which was like Paris's version of 54. This was an insane show. The place was packed with over a thousand people. During her set, her unitard ripped. She was like nude. 
<laughs> and on top of that, an audience member maced her in the face. What? Yeah. Right before she was supposed to go on and Don't sing. Don't do that. Her, right? Don't do that. She was supposed to sing La Vie en Rose. She's naked with mace in her face. And Yves Saint Laurent is side stage. Okay. She's like, Yves, what do I do? <laughs> no, she probably didn't say that. That's just me. <laughs> but he takes off his cummerbund and wrapped it around her chest. And he was with his fashion muse, Lulu, at the time. And she tore off her scarf and wrapped that around Grace's waist. So she had this like new outfit and she went out there and she finished the show. So I, I feel like I knew that she would. So at the time she was with this small label called Beam Junction. They broke a deal with Island Records and this is where Grace's music career really takes off. So Chris Blackwell, he ran Island Records and he really took notice of Grace after she did this interview in New York Magazine which featured a very iconic image of her done by Jean-Paul Goud. Right on. So everyone probably knows this image. It's Grace naked, holding a microphone, shining with sweat. Leg her, up. Leg up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She actually did that image and wanted to work with him so bad. And she didn't tell her managers because she knew that they wouldn't approve. But this is really where she's like, I'm taking control of my life. I'm taking control of my image. Yep. She said for her, the image was a real sighting of how I saw myself, unreal, untamed, and utterly dramatic. I was thrilled. I looked right to me and how I felt, athletic, artistic, and alien. Nice. That's a great description. I'm going to just look at that again. Yeah, that photo. Highly recommend everyone Google Grace and Jean-Paul Gaud and like all of their photos that he did with her are just unbelievable. But yeah, that it's one unreal. is just, mm-hmm. my goodness. Oh, yeah. And Jean-Paul Gaud also becomes Grace's real life boyfriend too. Oh, so nice. boyfriend and collaborative partner at this point. Chris was on the music side, Jean-Paul's on the visual side and together with her, it's just this powerhouse. In 1979, her and Jean-Paul had one son together. His name is Paulo. All right, let's talk for a moment about Grace's musical career. So from 1977 to 1982, she releases one album a year. Portfolio, Fame, Muse, Mm. Warm Leatherette, Nightclubbing, and Living My Life. Those are all great names. Grace went back to Jamaica. She did a road trip with her boyfriend, really rediscovered her roots, realized Jamaica wasn't this scary, dark place, but could be also this beautiful one. And going back and having this revival there really also influences her music as well. She reconnected with reggae, and you can hear that on the later records as well. So in 85, 86, and 89, she also releases three more albums, Slave to the Rhythm, another great title, Inside Story, and Bulletproof Heart. So all except the first were on Island Records. The 80s were like really her time musically. Like she produced so much. Mm -hmm. Chris Blackwell and Jean-Paul, they're major collaborators in her life. And when she partnered up with them, she was like the artist she wanted to be. And another partnership she had was with the artist Keith Haring. Oh, You should look up these photos as well because Keith used to paint Grace's body for shows and for photographs, always different, but in Keith's style, of course. Whoa. Yeah. And direct onto her nude body. 
What a badass. Wow. Okay. Another yeah. important relationship that Grace has during this time period is with Andy Warhol. She has an entire chapter to Andy in her book. They were really great friends. And of course, we know how much Andy loved kind of living through other larger than life people. Like he always kept people like that around, just like Evie. She says that when she was pregnant with Paulo, Andy Warhol and Debbie Harry threw her a baby shower <laughs> at this really like hot club at the time called the garage. And I just want to go back in time and be at that baby shower because I can't imagine like anything. That's your like, heaven. Yeah. <laughs> like Lynx, do you believe in an afterlife? Yes. And it's Grace Jones's baby shower hosted <laughs> by Andy Warhol and Debbie Harry. Exactly. Just just bring me there. Links, what are your spiritual beliefs? Um, <laughs> I believe that when my time on Earth is done here, I'll be transported back to 1970s 19... New York. Yeah. <laughs> Relationship romantically wise, her and Jean-Paul were together for around three years. Grace was crazy about him, but over time she kind of realized she wasn't being loved the way that she needed to be loved. Yep. He was much more focused on work and he would later explain to her that was his way of showing love. But again, that wasn't the way that she needed to be loved. He also kind of wanted to be the authority in the relationship and no one's going to be an authority over Grace Jones. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. before Grace, he was with women who didn't have strong personalities like that and were like happy to kind of be on the side, I guess. But yeah, she adored him, but it, it couldn't last. So while Grace was on tour, she really would want Jean-Paul to be with her, but he was like, no, I got my work. I have to focus on my work. So she actually like, kind of like warned him, like, if you don't be there for me, like something's going to happen. Like I'm going to find someone else. And that's kind of what happened. When she was in Australia, she ends up meeting Dolph Lundgren. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. We know who that is. He was going by <laughs> Hans then. So Hans Dolph was working security at a club that grace was playing at and her and her friends were like flirting with him and the other security guards and they went I out, would too right i mean yeah you seen him yeah so they all go out they dance they have fun she has an affair with him she sleeps with him when she came home she told jean paul and he decided their relationship was over they still had a collaborative relationship after that and have remained friends ever since and, you know, parents together and everything. So their relationship didn't end. It just shifted, basically. It's like, I have questions, but I know that you're going to answer them right now. So I'm just keeping my little mouth shut. So, okay, okay, continue. Her and Dolph kept in touch. They wrote each other for months before he came over to actually be with grace and they would end up being together for the next four years. I have a quote from grace being with Dolph had nothing to do with him being big and beefy. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it didn't have nothing to do with that, but <laughs> he really took care of me when if he hadn't done that, I would have died. I was so adrift because of how John Paul redefined the image of me, but neglected the actual me. I would say Dolph saved my life. I was touring so much. I felt super mature, but I was still very young in the sense that I was only really born when I moved to America. My childhood wiped out, devouring up my upbringing. So when I was 20, it was really like I was eight. At 30, I was 18. Dolph understood that. He didn't accuse me of being immature and childish. He looked at my situation and thought, I'm going to help you. 
What were your questions? Okay. Any questions? Well, and then did she have anything to do with his movie career? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. Okay. Like, how did he become... Um, God, it's just like the name is is on the tip of my tongue, but one of my all-time favorite movies of all time, Rocky Four. Oh, yeah. Ivan Drago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. How do we get there? I'll get there in one moment. Let me tell you one okay. thing before. Okay. Just talking about like looking up images and iconic images. If any listeners haven't seen the Helmut Newton photo shoot where Grace and Dolph are just naked the entire time what are you waiting for? You better be looking it up right now. It's just, so oh yeah, good. it is so It's good. just like the greatest photos to ever exist. Yeah. Also just any photo of them together, living it up in New York city is unbelievable. Like what a ridiculously good looking couple, like the fashion sense, they look so badass. I feel like people kind of assume that Dolph is like this macho idiot because of his looks, but in real life, he was super intelligent. He was actually coming to america to go to school he got his master's degree in chemical engineering yeah i mean where's lundgren like what's where where is he from sweden okay i was gonna say i was gonna say yeah like people from sweden like they have great education right like they have yes and his whole family were like chemical engineers so that's sort of why he went into it it wasn't a dream of his so that's where this shifts. So another part of Grace's career that we should talk about is her acting career. I mentioned her first film already. And by the mid 80s, other opportunities were coming along. So when Grace was with uh, Jean Paul, he really tried and succeeded really in controlling her career or her visual one, at least. He didn't want her working with other photographers or directors. And so for a while, she didn't. She actually ends up turning down the role of the snake lady in Blade Runner during that time. Mm-hmm. And okay. of course, like very much regrets it now. But once she had separated from Jean-Paul, she realized don't turn down amazing opportunities anymore. Go for it. So she wasn't about to do that again. And in 1984, she played Zula, Conan the Destroyer, opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger, another big beefy man. Mm-hmm. And in 1985, she was on the big screen as a Bond villain in A View to Kill. Her character's name in that was Mayday. And this is where her helping Dolph out comes because he was on set and she got him a small role. So his first on-screen appearance was in that film. Oh, cool. Yes. Grace did other cult films at the time. There's one called Vamp. Obviously, she's playing a vampire. It's like a comedy cult fun. Um, Another one that stands out to me is called Straight to Hell. It's by Alex Cox. He directed Sid and Nancy. And he also worked with a lot of other musicians. Like in that movie, Straight to Hell, Courtney Love's in it and Joe Strummer. Check that out if you're into uh, cult films. She was also in an Eddie Murphy movie called Boomerang. She's done others, but those are like the highlights in my mind. Mm-hmm. So yes, Grace getting all these parts in these 80 cult films. And after uh, A View to Kill comes out, Dolph basically immediately lands the role that launched his career, Rocky for Ivan Drago. Yeah. I will crush you. Yes. Born for it. Mm-hmm. So this is where the problem comes, though, because Grace says it was really the sudden fame and launch of his career that ultimately kind of ended their relationship. Mm-hmm. 
they got a lot of offers, but they kind of were wanted as a package, not as separate people. And they actually ended up moving to Hollywood together, but she says kind of like ego kind of took over sometimes. And Dolph ended up getting new management that were like really controlling of him. And obviously, again, no one's going to control Grace. Another thing was that Grace absolutely hated Hollywood, everything about it. She was New York. She was New York. It was interesting for her because she really thought acting was where she wanted to evolve to and like what she was kind of meant to do. But she was always only offered these, you know, wacky types of roles that kind of were based around the public perception of her kind of larger than life persona. And of course, as an actor, you have no creative control. You're in the hands of others. So over time, she realized like it just wasn't really for her. She says, in the end, there are only so many times I can play the demented diva based on the zanier parts of my personality. Mm-hmm. I, and I can imagine you get a new script and it's like the same part, like crazy diva, right? It's like, ugh. Grace does take a chapter in her book to discuss the media's perception of her. So we should take a moment to discuss it as well. Okay. There's an infamous talk show that she was on in 1980. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but she was touring England at the time, and she was asked to be on a show called The Russell Hardy Show. Nope. It's on YouTube for anyone interested. She discusses that during rehearsals, her and the other guests were in this circle, and they talked, and it was kind of this equal thing. But when they went live, the way that they were seated, Russell keeps turning his back to her and to Grace. Of course, she's like, this is a huge disrespect. Like, why are you turning your back on me? And during the interview, she's, she says that to him, like, why are you doing this? Like, what's going on? And he's kind of like, and she grabs him and she starts slapping him a bunch <laughs> of times to like get his attention, like stop turning your back on me type of thing. Right. Not like punching him in the face or anything, but like, yeah. And of course this becomes this huge media sensation. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone has an opinion. The label's furious with her thinking like, oh, you'll never get another interview again. Like you're this crazy woman, like hitting hosts. But of course, Grace ended up getting like more TV offers and everything. Good. This and a few other of what the media calls like diva moments has certainly kind of overshadowed parts of her career and everything. Another thing that Grace is kind of known for is being late or not showing up at all. Now, this is actually not quite true. Grace admits she was always late in real life, but never for jobs. One rule Grace always had, though, from learning the hard way, was that you make them pay first. If a club hires, if she's asked to star in something, um, do a party promotion thing, show up at an event, you pay her when she arrives or she won't go on. Yep. So this has led to a few times where she appears very late because behind the scenes, they're scrambling to get the money that they owe her or not at all because they don't get it. And then rumors fly that she's a diva. She's on drugs. She's, you know, she's the problem. Right. Yeah. Okay. Grace is a professional. She doesn't immediately go to the media and it's like, no, these are the actual facts. So it is her reputation that gets marred because of it. Later in the book, she says... I had to be a bitch to maintain any kind of authority. While if I were a man, I wouldn't have been considered a bitch. If I were a man, I would have simply been in charge. 
however aggressive or demanding I was. A man putting his foot down is control. It is strong. A woman putting her foot down is out of control. She's weak. Yeah, I was going to say that too. Just that, you know, men can like display certain behaviors in the public eye, but like, I don't know if there's, correct me if I'm wrong, a male equivalent of diva. No, I don't think so. No. Yeah. Grace's last two albums from the 80s weren't with Island Records. Her contract had run out and Capital was after her with a lot of money behind them. She says it was one of those like million dollar an album deals for five albums. And at the time she was like, I can't pass that up. She was really terribly sad to leave Island Records though and her partnership with Chris Backwell. But even he kind of encouraged her to take it. They were friends and they've remained friends and everything. Sadly, though, Grace would regret the decision and says this was a lesson where, you know, don't always go for the money. You know, mm-hmm. maybe sometimes it is, it's not right. It turned out that the people who desperately wanted her on the label didn't stay at the label for long. So she ended up working with people who weren't supportive of her. Right away, they began stripping her of her creative control, trying to change her image, her sound. She said... They treated me like I wasn't there, excluding me from my own from making my own record. So, of course, Grace rebels from being told what that's yeah, infuriating. That. Yeah, music still meant a lot to her, and she was still writing and everything. But she kind of just had it with the business side. Well, yeah, because that's why she got out of acting is because at least she had more control with her music until even that got taken over. Exactly. I do want to comment on one song on the album Inside Story, though, from 1986. The first track, I'm Not Perfect, But I'm Perfect for You, came (laughs) out of a flirtation that she had with Mick Jagger. (laughs) So they were hanging out. They were like, let's write a song together. And those were the first two lines that they came up with. And Grace was like, I'll finish it. So she completed it by imagining what her and Mick would have done, basically. (laughs) She also directed the music video for it. One of the last moments of total control that she had but I mean I shouldn't say total control they cut down like the day she was supposed to be like a two-week shoot to like three days and money and everything but it's a really cool video because it has cameos from a lot of her creative partners Andy Warhol's in there it was the last thing he participated in filming before he died and she hired Keith Haring as her assistant director he's in it as well she's painted up even Timothy Leary is in it and there's a story in the book like she dropped acid with Timothy Leary and (laughs) what a badass Mm -hmm. so yeah she basically butted heads with the label the entire time so while it's awesome she got to do that it wasn't the experience she really hoped for so again it was like just really disillusioning and you know she was not happy about it Interestingly, too, she also talks about them kind of basically gaslighting her at the label, how you can't win in that situation since the more you react, the more they use it as like proof that you're unhinged, right? Like the more mad you get, the more yeah, right? So it was just an unhealthy, toxic thing. So she, she just backed out. The 90s were pretty quiet musically for Grace. She didn't release any albums, but she was still touring, putting on shows, making appearances, She also reconnected more with her family. Her mom was always this huge supporter of her, but because of her dad being a pastor and everything, she always felt like she was a big embarrassment to her father. 
But during this period, she got really close with him again. And she even managed to help her dad meet his hero, Nelson Mandela, when she went to Africa. In 1996, Grace got married to a man named Attila Alton Bay. That's a name. It's very interesting because he's like kind of like Dolph a little bit. He was a bodyguard Mm -hmm. from Turkey. Mm -hmm. After two months, they got engaged, eloped to Brazil. They stayed together for about seven years, I believe. She was also the older woman. She was about 30 years older than him. And she says that she didn't know at the time how young he was, like he lied about it or something. Yeah. Unfortunately, Attila had an aggressive streak. And at one point in their relationship, he held two butcher knives to her throat during an argument. And that was when Grace was like, nope, done. Yeah, fuck you, Attila. Yeah. She says, he didn't hurt me, but there was a vivid vision of what could happen. A vision Mm -hmm. that was shaking next to the veins on my neck. Yeah. Online, it says they divorced in 2004, but Grace says that they've never officially divorced and she has no idea where he is now. So I don't know. Okay. In the 2000s, she met a man named Ivor Guest. He was a music producer and they really got along. He really wanted to make an album with her. So she recorded again. She released in 2008 uh, her last album. It was called Hurricane. She also fell in love with him, and she moved to England to be with him. Their personal relationship didn't last, but Grace says at the end of her book that they were possibly working on another album together. The book came out Mm -hmm. in 2014, so it's been a while. I don't know if we'll get another album out of her. Hopefully we do, though. Mm -hmm. She has been releasing singles here and there, though, so maybe he uh, worked on those with her. Where is she living now? I believe she lives in England. And it seems like she spends a lot of time in Jamaica as well. Cool. While releasing that last album, she also became a grandmother. Her (laughs) her son, Paulo, had a daughter named Athena. And she loves being called grandmother because the grand, she earned the word grand. grand. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. In the 2000s, she sang with Pavarotti, which was like a really big thing for her. There's a chapter about that in the book. She's also been involved in a lot of charity events, mainly focusing on AIDS research. Of course, being a fixture of the 80s in that scene, she lost many, many friends to AIDS. Mm -hmm. So that's really important for her. Um, I'm not sure if Grace is currently seeing anyone, but she talks about being content in the book. She says the key is to make friends with yourself. And I liked this little quote here. Being alone is not a bad thing unless I make it a bad thing. Being alone doesn't mean that I'm waiting for something to happen, that I think being alone is second best. I'm writing a song about it, about how I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. If you are lonely, when you're alone, you're in bad company. I have plenty of friends I can call, friends I can go see who come see me. So far, I have no need for an imaginary friend. I have no reason to complain. I am an energy, confident that I will find exactly the energy I am looking for. Sometimes being alone is energy. Sometimes that energy is positive and sometimes it's negative. It's the empty space between the stars and it never scares me. It excites me. Yes. Yes. Right? I love that. Yeah. That's a great way to live. Yeah. In in 2017, she released a documentary, Grace Jones, Bloodlight and Bammy. Uh, It's pretty awesome. In 2018, she received the Order of Jamaica from the Jamaican government. In 2020, there was an art exhibition centered 
around her in the UK. I imagine that must have been really awesome. Yeah. She still tours. I looked her up and she's got some shows booked for next year in the UK. And Unreal. Yeah. I hope she comes. What a legend. Yeah. What a living legend. That was worth the wait all of the time when we're like, we'll get to her. And I am just so honored and so happy that I got to be the one to record with you for it. So thank you for presenting that. For a nonlinear story, you would never know because you put that, you, you did it so brilliantly. And it's just, there was one point I was listening to you and I was just thinking, damn, she's good. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, this was a fun read. But when you're reading to research and like writing, it was like somewhat frustrating at times, like, Oh yeah. Like a great read in itself. And again, always recommend people pick up the book because there's so show me the cover of it. Just her being her. <laughs> so, so good. Right? So good. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. Wow. That was so great. It's so much fun. Well done. And thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. Cause uh, I missed this, but I'll think of uh, the next one I want to do. Oh, I actually know. I actually know what it's going to be. It's going to be a surprise. I'll tell you later, but it's going to be a surprise for listeners. Great. Yeah, I got a, I just found a book that I've been searching for for ages. Oh, so amazing. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, thanks for stopping by. No problem. I'll do it again sometime. Great. All right. And I'll be sure to post that howling picture of my pack. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks everyone for listening. Uh, We'll be back soon. In the meantime, I'll be listening and uh, I'll see you guys next time. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by Lynx O'Leary. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together.